good evening from Plug Kid Studios in Largo, Florida. I'm Scott. I'm Abram. And we are here with episode 577 of F5 Live, refreshing technology for Sunday, October 25th, 2020. This show is a proud part of the Tech Podcast Network. If it's tech, it's here. This week, video game streaming is under review. Google is officially under suit, and Quibi is underwater. Wherever you are and however you're accessing our show, whether it be on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Snapchat, uh, through a podcatcher like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Amazon Music, Spotify, TuneIn, or a myriad of other options through our live stream platforms, livestream.com, Twitch, Periscope, YouTube, or Facebook, or of course on our website, plughitslive.com. Thank you for making us a part of your day. There are two ways that you can do that. The first is you can join us live Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern by going to f5live.tv slash join us. There you can chat with us during the show and give your feedback on the topics as we talk about them. Or you can always subscribe at plugkidslive.com slash subscribe. There you'll see all of our shows, including F5 Live, Pilch Point, Plug Kids Live Presents, and more. And of course, find all of the different ways that you can watch or listen. Avram, how are you doing tonight? You are muted. I am not hearing you at all, buddy. Not bad. Hey, now uh, I hear you. Not bad at all. We have a. Uh, I have a new, a new home setup now. I'm up to. Let me see if I can. If there's enough wire on here to show this. I'm up to. Uh, four monitors oh. so, so nice so now i have my uh my set uh my best setup for doing multitasking um did your monitor did your monitor happen to go back on sale during prime day or did you just go sort of. i had to do it um, a combination of the two. It came into stock at, came back in stock at Lenovo at regular, kind of regular price. But then I also found that Retail Me Not uh, claims to give you 10%, claim to give you 10% back. Okay. Which you don't get for a few weeks. So we'll have to see if it happens. Um, so I bought a second one of my monitor, although... They actually make this as two different model names. So I have it one of each model name. Um, one says Lenovo on it and one says ThinkVision, but otherwise they're supposed to be the same, except the OSD menu is different, apparently, uh, nobody told me. And I don't know if it's because they're different different model name numbers or just because this happens with panels, but I can't get the colors to match. Um, mm. The one of them seems to have no matter what I do to adjust them, they don't quite have the same, the same colors, the same color, you know, they don't quite match. They don't quite match. I look at the a picture on one, a picture on another. They don't, they don't look quite the same. Um, so hard, hard to say. But I think having talked to some a lot of other people who have uh, plenty of different monitors, they also see these issues. So. Um, Kind of thinking it might have been happening with my other monitors before <laughs> this. I just didn't really notice. I wasn't being picky about it. Mm -hmm. um, 
one of them seems a little the, the new one seems a little bit more washed out than the older slightly older one hmm. but um i don't know uh i guess it i guess it depends so yeah i mean it's uh i'm messing with the I keep messing with the color on them but uh i'm i'm happy to have this many monitors i um having the smaller ones on the top is not bad because what i do with them the most important thing and i just emphasize this to anybody else thinking about getting more than two monitors is it's not it's i normally had two monitors but i didn't want to give up screen real estate to have things permanently on one of them so like i want to have my email inbox always visible mm-hmm. i want to have my slack window uh that i use for chatting with my coworkers always visible and you know i might also want to have my uh google analytics for our website to see what what the traffic is mm-hmm. in real time always visible or maybe um so I use the top two monitors now for that always visible stuff. Yep. And then that gives me two monitors to actually have like current work on. Yeah. And that's um that's the real advantage. It's not that I have to have four monitors for like, you know, I'm doing work and I have one for writing some code and I'm doing one on one monitor, I'm I'm writing the code. Another monitor, I'm I'm testing it on our website. Another monitor is the FTP client. Another monitor is Photoshop right. designing graphic. Like that wouldn't be bad either. But <laughs> the things that I want to have always open all the time, um, and it's it that has changed my workflow because a lot of times I wouldn't have like Slack or email open for a few hours or whatever, and then mm-hmm. I. I hear from people like, how come you didn't get my message? You know, yeah, because maybe I didn't see the alert right away, or maybe it wasn't something that was well that that I was signed up to get a notification for. So, right. Um, so I think that that is the biggest thing. Uh, given that these new monitors are 4K and 28 inch, I feel like I'm wasting space. I'm wasting all this lovely real estate by using one window on each. So. <laughs> What I try to do, but don't usually succeed at doing, is to actually split them. I downloaded a new program, a new utility, uh, which um, co- which I've I've never seen anything else that does this. It's called Max Two, and what it does is it will allow you to change the behavior of your maximize button, but on different on every screen that you have. So I set my like my primary screen. Um, the one that I'm like use the most mm-hmm. to have when you hit maximize, it only takes up half the screen so that I have two windows. So I'm using two windows on, on that screen. But a lot of times I'll have something where I really just want to concentrate, give more space and attention to what I'm doing, like right now our video. So like I end up stretching them across the screen anyway and kind of not using that feature. But um, I did to, tr- I mean, I know you have, obviously people can use windows snap, which they can hit, um, the windows key and an arrow to do, but I ha- had trained myself so often to use the maximize button on windows that this way it kind of, um, like stops me from wasting space <laughs> by putting it on half the screen. 
That's funny. I'm looking at the website right now and it's it's definitely interesting. It gives you it gives you more uh, zones than the standard Windows Snap does. Not that I necessarily would use the the ultra customization of the zones uh, the way they do, but uh, it's definitely an interesting idea. I obviously use the Windows Snap. I think we've talked about this all the time, um, and I've just gotten uh, <laughs> I've gotten to the point where I don't even think about it. It's just you know Windows left, Windows right, and it auto snaps left and right for me, which is pretty cool. I'm I can definitely see uh, if you're an ultra wide monitor user for sure, because with the the custom snap zones, that would be super useful if you're dealing with an ultra wide. Uh, in fact, I plan on sending this link over to uh, to Mark to let him <laughs> know about this because he's got an ultra wide monitor and he might freak out about this. <laughs> it's a cool idea. Hmm. Yeah, it, it is. So, I mean, I'm always a believer that you can never have too much screen real estate. So, you know, um, I think four monitors is, I think four monitors is it for me for now, for a while. I actually have a coworker uh, who has six monitors, has a six monitor setup. You have a six monitor setup also? Uh-huh. I sure do. Okay. Wow. So what, um, see, so four <laughs> is not that much. <laughs> so and I have. What are you using it on? Um, using it on or using it for? Yeah. What, what computer are you using it with? Oh, um, actually I have, um, I have one computer with, with, uh, four and then another computer with two and I use mouse without borders. So I use the one keyboard and mouse across both computers. Um, just so that I can keep my, uh, cause so I've got a grid of four, like what you have. And then to my left, I've right. got two more above me where I do the things you were talking about. I've got our show stats and our YouTube snap stats snap side by side. I've got the website stats on another screen. Uh, and then, uh, that computer is also running the windows insider program. So I can keep up on what's going on with, you know, the upcoming windows. Um, and then the main computer I've got, I usually have entertainment in the top left corner. So Netflix or Hulu or whatever. And then I've got two messengers snap side by side. It's uh, usually messenger and Microsoft teams. Cause that's what I use for work instead of Slack most of the time. Uh, and then I've got visual studio and whatever else going on. You know, my active, what I'm working on on the bottom two, basically the same way you do. Yeah. Cause it's actually, I don't think, it's that easy to have six monitors attached to the same computer. Yeah, not really. Um, so like I have an RTX 20, 2070 graphics card in here and it has four monitor out, four monitor out ports. It cannot, it cannot do more. It cannot support more than four 4K monitors. Um, it cannot support more than four monitors of any resolution. So so it the only way i could think of to do it would be either if there was a way i could get a second video card mm -hmm. which is not easy to do because you don't nvidia doesn't really 
really support dual video cards very well anymore. Or the more, the easier, more likely scenario would be to get a display link dock, connect via USB, and output to additional monitors that way. Yeah. But um, I also don't know if I have enough space in this room to do it. <laughs> um, plus, I promised my wife I wouldn't, I I wouldn't get more than four monitors. Um, although the doors, I don't want to say this in front of the old ones are good, but the door is open for maybe next year or something. Um, getting getting the top two to be the same kind as the bottom two. Uh-huh. Um, so, but it's the, the top two are fine. I mean, they're, they're good. And it's actually, I don't need them to be so big for what I'm doing with them. Right. But, right. Um, it's one thing that's interesting is with windows and I'll just leave it with this. If you have monitors that are not the same resolution, then one of them won't be directly above the other. Right. Or though, you know, like uh-huh. I have to go up the middle. Yes. Right to get to this, to get to this other monitor. If I, if I go up from the corner or whatever, it's, there's no monitor there because uh-huh. it's the grid that windows shows you, you've got a position yep. those monitors. So you so, hit a wall, um, you're in a dead corner. So you hit a, there, there are parts that you can't go up or, or whatever, but, um, that's fine. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's neat. I mean, one thing I wish that I could do, I'm, I bet there's a way to do this, but I, I haven't figured out yet is to make it like when it opens up automatically put certain windows and certain monitors. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I want that, say I want that Slack window to be in that, in that monitor right over corner. there. Like, yeah, I want it to automatically go there when I open, when I boot up. Um, that would be nice. I have, for the stats computer, I have the uh, the browsers always open back up exactly where I left them, which is great. But yeah, other than that, you never know. <laughs> there's no, yeah. there's no predicting what's going to happen. Oh, and that's infuriating. But well, welcome to the four monitor club, buddy. Uh, <laughs> it is it's it's definitely going to be an experience. It'll it. You always take a little bit of time of going, oh, right, 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 I can put that up there. But it's, yeah, it'll definitely change the way you work in a good way. So, oh, hmm. punched my microphone. Anyway, <laughs> I guess with, with the punching of the microphone, that is our sign to, uh, to talk about some news. This week's Nifty Gifties on F5 Live is proudly powered by the Microsoft Store. Whether you're looking for a new laptop, a tablet, an Xbox, games, and a whole lot more, you can get them at the Microsoft Store. And remember that current students, faculty, parents, and active military can save up to 10% on almost anything. And uh, you can find out about all of that and all the deals that are going on right now by going to f5live.tv slash Microsoft. All right, so in June, something interesting happened. Uh, T-Mobile failed. And uh, 
By that, I mean the entire network. You, If you were a T-Mobile customer, you probably noticed that uh, calls and texts were having issues. If you were not, you probably noticed your friends and or family posting on Facebook about their their calls and texts having trouble. Anybody else having trouble with their with their cell phone? I saw dozens of posts like that that day because I technically, I guess, was going to be a T-Mobile customer in the future, but was not quite just yet. Um, and uh, so what happened was they were doing some work in Atlanta, uh, basically swapping out some uh, older routers for new ones and uh, a, a data line, a connector link, uh, failed. And apparently, they did not have any of the failover uh, technology in place that they're supposed to have. And uh, so Atlanta isolated itself. And then all the phones kept trying to connect to the network, and they'd fail. They'd connect to the network, and they'd fail. Eventually, uh, Atlanta was unisolated but the hardware wasn't working. So the phones all tried to connect outside of Atlanta, causing congestion and similar to what happened with the, the, the Northeast blackout years ago. Um, you know, congestion pushed further out, which created new problems and new things started to fail and it just cascaded out and all of T-Mobile went down. So, uh, as I said, there are some best practices that are supposed to be followed um, to maintain your FCC licenses, for example. And obviously, T-Mobile did not have any of those best practices in in effect, which is where all of this came from. This week, the FCC published the uh, the results of of the investigation on what had happened, which is what I just explained, uh, and they also put out a general letter, a press release, saying, hey, carriers, remember to do your job. And that is the only repercussions that T-Mobile will get uh, for 12 hours of nationwide network failure. Which, considering how hard the FCC tried to come down on Verizon for the outage in California during the, the fires, what, two years ago? This seems, it seems like a, a really lax response to me. What do you think, Abram? Um, yeah, but I mean, it's not good. This kind of stuff, unfortunately, will happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it would be nice if T-Mobile would do something to make good to make good to their customers. Yeah. Give them 12 hours off. I don't know. Um, after provide the service, you shouldn't be charging for it, but have unlimited plans, how you prorate somebody for 12 hours of that it yeah. probably doesn't come out to much. Um, probably isn't, isn't worth much. Obviously, if you were in a situation where you desperately needed to make a phone call, this, this, this problem, um, I assume the phone still worked for 911. No. Do we know? They did not. No, they didn't. Correct. Uh, so they don't connect to somebody else's network for 911? Um, so theoretically, yes. Um, but since the phones were failing to 
um, to identify. Uh, they were essentially um, uh, isolating themselves. They were they saw AT, they saw T-Mobile. Um, they tried to connect to T-Mobile. They failed to connect to T-Mobile, and some sort of a, a weird software issue during the isolation uh, essentially made it so that they couldn't they couldn't even identify over Wi-Fi. Um, they were they were unable to identify themselves. Hmm. Yeah, That's interesting because I have T-Mobile and I don't remember having a, a hard day with them. In June, I know people were talking about it. I probably didn't, unfortunately, probably didn't leave the house. Um, yeah, the I know the identification problem was mostly an Atlanta issue. Um, so Atlanta for sure was was without nine one one service. Um, so what happened? Outside of Atlanta, well, inside and outside of Atlanta, the thing that everybody experienced was essentially that voice over LTE and uh, voice over Wi-Fi um, was disabled basically nationwide uh, because it was all overrun and it started to come down. So phones were switching over to 3G and 2G to try and make voice calls. Um, some places still have a robust... Uh, 3G infrastructure. Some places don't, um, you know, as as towers fail or whatever, they don't spend as much time trying to maintain them. Somewhere like New York probably uh, puts more time into into maintaining. Maybe who knows? Um, but but that was that was the all voice was trying to switch back to 3G and 2G, and then as that happened, obviously they have less infrastructure. In general, right, three G and two G have less have less uh, capability, less bandwidth than than four G or Wi Fi for sure, and so that that started to congest those up too. It was a mess. It is a is a fascinating a fascinating situation. Um, it is it is all because of essentially because of a preventable software issue that. Uh, uh, essentially, the the load balancer was configured incorrectly, which is why the switchover never happened, and why Atlanta isolated itself. And then, like a floodgate opening up, obviously, everybody trying to do the same thing at once. T-Mobile DDoSed themselves, <laughs> so it cascaded from there. Um, it's very similar to a thing that uh, happened with with AT and T. Uh, long distance many, many years ago. I think it was sometime in the early 90s or something where a software issue caused like a third of the country to be without long distance service. But it's definitely interesting. Obviously, the FCC never, we talked about this a couple months ago, right, Avram? The FCC talks big and never actually comes back on anything. So I guess this is probably what I would have expected. But hopefully in the future they'll hold... There's now a warning, right? They've said industry standards. Follow the industry standards or things are going to get bad. So maybe this is like getting pulled over and getting a written warning. Yeah, I mean, one thing I... I, I mean, I think the fact that they were down for 12 hours 
for you know is is bad but then when you think about people not being able to dial 911 mm-hmm. um you know someone could die yes. i don't know if anybody did die but if you but if you have emergency services down someone could die yeah right i mean that's that's really that's really serious so um they need I think they need a little more, bit more than a. It's not even a slap on the wrist, a tap on the wrist. Uh, if if emergency services go down, uh-huh. if it's if it's people can't surf the internet or something like, listen, necessary, we need it. But if people can't even even e nine work, isn't it? If you have a phone without a SIM card, it can dial 911? Absolutely. So long as it can connect to a network. Right. So you're saying that one of these T-Mobile phones has could not connect to 911. Because it had a SIM card. Even a phone it, without a SIM. Because it had a SIM and it was trying to... If you SIM card out, would it have worked? Yes. Absolutely. Almost certainly. Uh, so that... So, you know, granted... Granted, if I have to dial nine one one, I think the last thing that I would have time to do is find a little tiny pin. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not easy to get your SIM card out. If, if for anyone who hasn't tried uh, that little tiny door, and you've got to put, you got to find a paper clip or it's got to be really a thin paper clip. Pin. Yeah, because those little holes are getting really, smaller. Really, right. It's. Maybe it's more like a needle mm-hmm. or something like a that straight you have pen. to stick in there. Straight pen, something like uh, that. Really, really, you know, thin pin to go in there to open it up to get the. Um, and I don't think a lot of people would have known that or right. had the presence of of mind in the middle of an emergency to take out their SIM card. Absolutely. So, uh, especially, so especially if you, especially if you didn't know at the time what was happening, because even T-Mobile didn't know. What was happening? They actually. Yeah, how would you know that you needed to take out your SIM card? Right. They actually, T-Mobile, during the event, misdiagnosed what was happening, which is why they de-isolated Atlanta the way that they did, which cascaded the problem because they misdiagnosed the issue. So even they didn't know that the problem was that phones weren't registering with the network. So even they couldn't have told you take your SIM out to call 911 because they didn't know what the problem was at the time. So it would have been just an absolute honest to God shot in the dark, pulling the SIM card uh, in the moment because even Timo didn't know what was happening. So, yeah. So yes, but uh, that's, you know, they do really need uh, to take, to, to, to take that seriously. And I hope that, if somebody suffered medical uh, damage, uh, you know, died or, or their condition got worse or whatever because they couldn't dial nine one one during this during this outage, that they have some recourse because that's that's really bad. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a bad situation. If that happened, I have not heard any reports of. Uh of any sort of medical related or emergency related issues. Not to say that there wouldn't have been, 
uh, but I haven't heard any reports. So at least that's good. Um, likely nothing else will come of this unless somebody does hear, you know, does realize that what happened was because of uh, uh, negligence on T-Mobile's part, which is what the FCC is saying, uh, and goes after them for an emergency situation. Unless that happens, I don't think we're going to hear anything more on this. Hopefully it'll be the last time we see something, certainly on this scale, because uh, it's definitely the the biggest outage, uh, wireless outage we've seen. You know, one of the one of the big three entirely going down for half a day. Uh, so hopefully we'll never see anything like that again. But you know, technology is what it is. Humans make mistakes, and uh, that's exactly how we got where we are. So. This week's Pilch Point with Avram Pilch is proudly powered by PureVPN. Uh, the best way to protect your privacy online is with PureVPN. You can hide your online activities, say goodbye to regional restrictions, and improve your streaming quality. Plus, it is available for almost all of your devices. And you can get a special price and a 31-day money-back guarantee all by going to pilchpoint.live slash PureVPN. All right, Avram. I think you got something to show us, right? Yes, I do. So, what I have here is a laptop, but not like any laptop you've seen before. It is the Crow Pie 2. It's a regular laptop for regular use, because if I lift up the keyboard, we'll see special ta-da it looks is a learning it looks like a radio shack uh electronic learning kit it is the successor to that awesome so we we talk a lot about how awesome it is to learn how to program things with a raspberry pi because you need uh, the real fun of using a raspberry pi is not that it's a 35 dollar computer that can run linux because most of us already have PCs that could run Linux or Windows. Uh, it's connecting it to lights, motors, and sensors. But when you buy, normally buy a Raspberry Pi starter kit, it just comes with a Raspberry Pi and you know a case and a plug to plug it in and maybe a keyboard and mouse. But that's all computer stuff. Where's the fun in that? Mm -hmm. You got to buy motors and sensors, but which ones to get and how to use them. So... Here we've got something that really addresses that problem and it's great for kids because it is in the laptop form factor here, but it has built in all of these cool uh, lights, motors, and sensors, and there are actually more things come in the box. So uh, inside of this Crow Pi 2 is a Raspberry Pi 4, uh, 4 gigabyte. You can buy it actually in several different configurations, one of which, the, the most basic of which is 269, you bring your own uh, Raspberry Pi. This, I think, is the advanced kit that's 399 and comes with just a variety of other sensors, the Pi inside, uh, game controllers, because it also comes with RetroPie, which is a game emulation system, and all of these things. So what we have here, among other things, is we've got an L... Um, 
an LED screen. We've got a matrix of buttons. We've got an eight by eight LED matrix. So that that's for making light up things. We've got um, all 40 GPIO pins, and this would you could use to put on hats, which are expansion boards for Raspberry Pi. Uh, we've got an ultrasonic sensor. We've got a photoresistor sensor. We've got an RFID sensor, and it comes with a bunch of RFID tags, so you can program it to do um, to do art, you know, to do different things when you flash a tag in front of it. We've got connectors here for a stepper motor and a servo motor, and it comes with those in the box. Um, we've got a little, I think this is a little joystick over here. Um, this is, I think, a motion sensor. Um, I don't even know what have a sound, a buzzer, sound sensor. Uh, it comes in the box with a moisture sensor for potted plants. So, uh, and, and the screen here is an 11 inch, uh, full HD 1920 by 1080 screen. Now, one thing it doesn't come with annoyingly is a battery. So you got to use it plugged in. The, the Ella Crow, the company that makes it sells, uh, sells a battery that you can put into this slot here in the back. Hmm, let me see. Um, but it doesn't come with one in the box. So um, the thing that's really neat about this though, is if all you had was just the physical parts that I showed you, you still might be a little bit bored because what am I going to do with all this? You need to learn, right? So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, let me see if I can do this. I'm going to share my screen and I'm going to show you, what does it do? Um, and I'm going to show you uh, what the interface looks like. So it ha comes with its own UI. And when you first, uh, I'll show you the home screen in a second, but when you get into the learning section, you can learn how to program in either Python or Scratch. Uh, Scratch is a good programming language for kids. That's very popular. It's block-based. They drag blocks around. Uh, I like my son to use Python, which is a little bit more grown up because it's a text-based language that, that adults use. Anyway, what you can see here is inside there's this kind of uh, ma image map of what the um, image map of what it looks like, right? Uh, you know, what the sensor sensors on it look like. It actually doesn't even show all, all of them, but you can highlight things and you can see what they do. And what's interesting is if you want a lesson about it, you click on it and it'll actually give you a lesson and with the code to do it. So you see here, there's like a little character telling you, we'll learn about ultrasonic distance sensors and how we can measure. And then you can like, like kind of click through and get stuff and it gives you code to put, um, you know, explains how it works, gives you some code to put over here uh, into the, the code editor. You save it, you can run it, and then it'll actually like work on the sensor inside. Um, you know, whether it's a sensor or there's one here that he really enjoyed playing with before that lets you make a little calculator. So you use these buttons here like a calculator and then uh, it ends up actually showing the calculation on this screen. So, um, so it's, uh, you know, these are the motor, these are the motor connectors. You can use them for different things. Um, so it has, you know, just a lot of, a lot of possibilities. See, I'm going back a screen. It gives you the choice of Python or scratch for learning these things. And then it also comes with 
this is the home screen. So you can see there's the Minecraft stuff where you can learn about um, about how to program with Minecraft because there's programming for Minecraft. Uh, there's this section, the AI section. There's a camera on the front, so you can actually, uh, when you click through to here, you can program it for facial recognition or program it as a microphone for speech recognition. And it's the same kind of lesson that you go through. It loads um, Python. This one I think has to be Python. Um, and it explains to you how to, you know, all the steps for doing it. These are like serious, you know, like teaches you about real adult stuff. Like OpenCV is what adults use. It's not, you know, um, it's not just, you know, kiddie stuff that they're just going to outgrow really fast. It's, it's useful stuff, right? So, um, you know, there's this projects here. Here's another tutorial go through. Um, so it's expensive, you know, 269 gets you the basic kit without a Raspberry Pi 4, uh, 399 gets you what, what I have. It's definitely not a replacement for a real laptop for your child. I mean, don't get me wrong. If you go to the, you have the Raspberry Pi desktop on here. So, you know, you can surf the web and you can program and you can use office apps and, and all that stuff. Uh, but the, um, you know, it doesn't have a battery. Uh, I don't think as powerful as Raspberry Pi 4 is. I don't think a lot of people would use it in lieu of a PC or, or Chromebook or a Mac in terms of web surfing performance. Um, but it's really good for learning about programming and learning about electronics uh, because there's just so many lessons, so many lessons in there uh, that you can that you can use. So um, I think I think it's pretty cool. Um, you know, personally, I'm I don't really like the feel of this keyboard, but if you're eight years old like my son, I love. It also comes with a wireless mouse, um, at least. But you can also, it has USB ports, so you can plug in a separate mouse, uh, use it. Um, uh, what I really like about this is that as you with all essential pieces that your needs are even in the uh, programming and electronics. I, you don't need to a bunch of separate pieces and try and sort of stitch together. You can go through the tutorials and everything you need is right there. And and that's super cool. You know, looking at looking at some of the things I'm on the website right now, and I'm looking at you know some of the the capabilities of the. Well, I guess it's more of a platform than just a device, right? Because it's got. UI and everything, um, but it's got AI voice recognition, AI facial recognition, which we saw as one of the projects uh, when you were uh, yep. when you were showing off some of the the capabilities there. I mean, that's like you said, that's some pretty advanced stuff. That's not that's not small scale things. Yeah. Yeah, no joke. Also, it, you know, I mean, like anybody, it can connect to other boards, Arduino. Oh, and it also came with uh, a bunch of like little um, 
this will be the death of me. I might have to kind of throw it out when my son's not looking because it's going to make a mess. Um, it also comes cardboard, um, all these cardboard cutouts of, of Minecraft place, Minecraft places that you can like put together. So it's like, you know, it's fun. And it comes, uh, it also comes with another micro SD card that has RetroPie emulator on it and with these controllers so you can play retro games on it. Um, although that's the basic kit that's 269 doesn't come with that. But you sure. don't really, to be honest, you don't really need that. Um, you, you could easily just make your own micro SD card with, you know, get your own controllers. But uh, the screen is decent. You know, it's it's has a lot of backlight bleed, but I guess what do you expect? I mean, I just don't think of it as a laptop. Like if you're thinking of it as I'm going to buy my child a laptop, then this is not for you. This is not what it's for. I, I wouldn't recommend this for someone to get it for their kid to use for school. I wouldn't recommend them to get it to use for, for, for anything but this. It is a really, really good electronics learning tool and programming learning tool. That's, that's what it's for. Now, obviously spending that amount of money, you better make sure that your kid's going to use it uh, going to actually go through those lessons and use it yeah. because that otherwise you'll be really annoyed. Um, but there's a lot of there, there there's a lot. I mean, I see, I've gone through a lot of robot kits, a lot of electronics kits in my, uh, in my time as a parent and as an editor reviewing things. And most of them give you stuff that's very proprietary. Like, oh yeah, you can learn how to program, but it's our special programming language that mm -hmm. only works on our robots or our learning kit. No, this teaches you how to program in Python. Python is a serious adult programming language that's used for electronics, for all kinds of things. So if your child learns this, and, and even if they are not comfortable with that right away and they, they start with Scratch, which is the block-based language, that is a standard. Scratch is made by mm -hmm. MIT, it is language. So I, what I really like is when you give a child a learning kit that is that uses standards, yeah. that teaches them how to use something, they can then go to another computer, another not take that skill, not concepts like, oh, I learned the concept of programming, right? that learn what they actually exactly learned and take that to another device it can carry uh, forward situation and and carry it forward yeah and this will do that for you yeah that was so, that was actually one of our complaints when uh when we first started mentoring with first uh first tech challenge was using this bizarro world language called robot c which is used by nobody <laughs> and uh and so uh they they eventually transitioned out of that and started doing all of their stuff in Java, which again gives you the ability to carry skills forward because, you know, even if you learn Java and you never use Java, Java and other C languages are, you know, similar enough. I, I've taken zero Java classes and all my C sharp stuff made me basically an expert in Java. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, the, that that always annoyed me with with first was that robot C. Well, what are we learning? Concepts? Who cares? I I want something that I can carry forward on a more real world basis. So I'm glad that this is the case here too. 
Yeah. So I, for that reason, and we, we actually, we have a review of this up on tomshardware.com. We've had a review up of it for a while. I just got my, uh, my unit this weekend, but, uh, we've actually for, uh, had a review of this up since August. So I definitely encourage folks to check out our full review at tomshardware.com of the Crow Pi 2, but also, uh, really this is, this would make a nice holiday present, uh, for a child. And afford to spend at least the 269 to get to get it uh you can go to elecro e-l-e-c-r-o-w.com and they say that orders will be shipped in november november so uh so presumably well in time for the holiday um it's definitely a great a great great learning gift it says ages eight and up uh, my son is eight and he's on the Python, depending on how advanced your child is really a group for you to work, to do as a, you know, as a parent to, to play with you may learn some things. Yeah, for sure. And, and, uh, don't be, uh, don't be intimidated. Even if you don't have a, a strong background, <laughs> in in programming or really any background in programming if you can start with with scratch if you're basically if you're able to do legos and think your way through how to get from the room you're in out your front door um if you can put those two skills together you've basically built scratch <laughs> you can basically use scratch which is a pretty good uh pretty good place for for everybody to begin because it's i've always liked the, the concept, uh, Scratch is the first implementation that has been uh, effective, I think. And it's it's a it's a good thing. So I'm glad that they've got both of them on there. Yep. Very cool. Well, Avram, as always, uh, I appreciate you showing it off. Uh, it's definitely a cool thing and uh, uh, perfect, perfect timing just in time for the holidays. And uh, as always... I look forward to what we talk about next. This week's Extra Life on F5 Live is probably powered by Razer. Get all the accessories you need to up your game on your PC, console, or mobile device from Razer. Whether you're looking for a gaming mouse and keyboard like we use here in the studio, a webcam and light for your Twitch stream because the webcam's back in stock, or an entire gaming setup like the Razer Blade 15. You can find it all at Razer by going to f5live.tv slash Razer somebody in our Florida gamer group let us know that the I think it was that group that the webcams were back in stock <laughs> uh maybe well yeah Quite fast depending yeah. on when you watch this exactly you never know minute to minute but the, <laughs> the fact that it was even a possibility is pretty exciting anyway uh speaking of game streaming uh and webcams and twitch and all of that um the world of game streaming has been very unique, uh, kind of since it started. It's been a little bit of the Wild West. Uh, we talked about some of the 
the negative connotations of the Wild West uh, environment a couple of months ago, where some of the some streamers, particularly uh, women and or uh, uh, people of color, have had trouble with commentary and you know inappropriate messages and all kinds of there things was, like that. There was a segment on GMA about it this week, by the way. Yes. Uh, uh, where our, our writer, Natasha, was one of the people that they interviewed on GMA. So, um, anyway. That watch was... That if, watch that anymore if you have time. For sure. Um, now, the other side of things has been the kind of lack of legal oversight. Um the the concept of streaming a video game is nebulous in in the legal realms. Um, in the last year or two, we've seen studios and publishers start putting out uh, free licenses for streamers, uh, basically giving them legal rights to stream the content. But technically, the music, the voice, the graphics, the story are all copyrighted, no different than a TV or a movie, and it's against the law to stream those. Uh, and so technically, there's been some gray area on uh, what is and is not okay uh, for game streaming. And this week, um, the creative director for Typhoon Studios, which is a Google Stadia studio, which is a weird uh, series of words to say in an order, uh, Alex Hutchinson tweeted that... Uh, he believed that game streamers should be paying royalties and uh, uh, obtaining a license to stream their gameplay on services like Twitch or Facebook Gaming. Uh, obviously, the Twitterverse responded harshly, as Twitter is known to do. And um, so he defended his, uh, his position. He said... It's amazing to me that people are upset at someone saying that the creators of content should be allowed to make some of the money from other people using their content for profit. Again, the argument from a legal perspective does hold some water. Um, though there's been kind of this unwritten agreement between gamers and streamers where both parties recognized that it is uh, in everybody's best interest. For example, Among Us uh, is is a game that today probably everybody has heard the name, but only in the last couple of months, despite the fact that the game has been out for two years. Why? Because some high-profile people started playing it on Twitch, and now everybody knows the game, and lots of people have played it. So it was good for, for the Among Us devs and publisher. It's good for the streamers. Obviously, that's not necessarily always the case. Um, you know, something, something with a hidden storyline and things like that. If somebody watches it, they're going to be far less likely to purchase the game. But that relationship has always kind of been unwritten. And uh, I, it sounds like... He wants it to be written the other direction. It's an interesting position for sure. Uh, yeah, so think about not just streaming, but all the places in which content from a game is used. I and mean, what about all the people who do video walkthroughs of games? 
Yeah. I mean, I guess let's, that's pretty much let's the same play, thing as streaming. Let's play content. That kind of I mean, stuff. Yeah. There, so it's an entire industry now. And a big the one. question is, the question is, I mean, the streamers presumably paid for obtained the game to play themselves. So what Mr. Hutchinson is talking about is, well, they should also have to pay for the fact that they're, they're broadcasting it. But the difference between public performance license. Yes. Like, like I can buy a a Blu-ray, but I can't open a movie theater and show the Blu-ray to people, or I can't even necessarily play it in my pub, whatever. Right. Uh, Nor can I stream uh, a video of me watching it uh, with the camera pointed at the TV or whatever. Like, right. there's there's limits. The difference between a song, um, a song, uh, you know, TV show or, or movie, and or a book, um, and a video game is that the video game is interactive. So, am I taking away like? All these other things, you're kind of taking away the revenue stream from from the content original content creator if you stream. Because if I could take a movie and stream it, and then someone can watch it, well, then maybe they won't actually pay to buy or rent it on their own. Like they already got got it from me. Uh, if I t- if I take music and I do that, well, then what's their incentive to pay for? But with a or, game, or let's say uh, Redbox, who was trying to buy DVDs retail instead of buying them under the uh, the rental agreement, right? So the difference, though, is that watching play and playing playing oneself are different things. Absolutely, and for a lot of people, watching somebody play um, encourages them to as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, all just to go back to walkthroughs, I cannot tell you how many times my son and I have been playing a game and we've gotten stuck and we went and we watched someone's walkthrough. If that service didn't exist, um, then maybe we would buy fewer games because we would be annoyed that we might get stuck. Absolutely. So, so doing, uh, doing, and you are not getting the experience of playing the game by watching somebody else play. Now, one could argue that maybe watching the game is enough. Maybe when I see you play through the whole game and I know how it's going to end, I'm not as excited to play it myself. Maybe so. Um, But maybe that's why nobody nobody has yet complained because this would be become a serious, serious problem. Well, you know, the, the idea of, of watching somebody play, particularly the professionals, right. Um, but even, even amateurs, uh, and that leading to sales of the game and driving people to want to play versus just watch 
is so ingrained in the gaming industry that Apex Legends uh, reportedly paid Ninja a million dollars to play their game on launch week and stream it. That's a, right. that's a huge amount of money, and uh, you know they they definitely uh, planned not that people watching him play would be enough. That <laughs> it was definitely intended. They they truly believed, and I think it worked. That people watching Ninja play the game would drive other people to play it, and I think it worked. Um, so it's. Is it possible that some, like you said, some types of games, uh, this might pose an issue? Yeah, sure. Some super story-driven type games with with hidden plot points and things like that. Maybe, maybe. But the gameplay would have to be really dull for... Uh, for that <laughs> to to dissuade somebody, but when you're talking about something like Apex Legends or Fortnite, honest to God, without Twitch, nobody would know about Fortnite today. <laughs> you know what I mean? That that game is a household name because of Twitch, not because of Fortnite, and I think we all know that. Right. So there are certainly whole gaming genres that only exist today because of game streaming. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know? The idea that that gaming, online gaming, has changed some uh, from, from just things like Call of Duty to also have, you know, Overwatch and Apex Legends and Fortnite and PUBG and all these other types of games that are very designed to be exciting to watch and to play isn't necessarily a bad thing because um, people enjoy both sides of it. They've built a whole new industry out of it. I think it's a cool thing, but I can definitely, I can see if you're deep down inside of the creative team more than like the, the marketing and wanting people to actually play it team. I can see how you might get there. Um, but I, I think streaming is a, is generally a benefit to, the game studios and publishers I mean, personally the problem is the minute that i mean let's say that that becomes a thing let's say that um let's say that hutchinson is the lars ulrich of game streaming right um lars ulrich being the metallica drummer who who famously made a big stink about music uh peer-to-peer music sharing right oh Sorry, I you almost made me spit out my drink. <laughs> Wasn't prepared for that analysis. Yes, absolutely. Let's say that he is, and uh, let's say that he is, and this all comes comes to pass, right? It's going to make make streamers think twice about. Um, I think what would have to happen then is some games, some game publishers would probably come out and say, like, ours is free to stream or something like that. Some of them already are. Some some See, studios and uh, some publishers have already been putting out into the world um, general use free uh, streaming licenses just in case uh, somebody wants to come around and uh, and get testy about it. So <laughs> there have been some studios that have gone and said, "Nope, whoop, 
Enjoy. Right. So I, I think, you know, maybe there will be others that try to charge people. It would become kind of a mess, but what it would ultimately do is it would be, it would probably be something that, um, you know, would be a boon for the companies that did allow. Mm-hmm. If uh, pub- game publishers insist, if any of them actually, any of them, not just, not just many, but even decide that they are now going to require licensing to do your streaming, that's going to create a burden on Twitch and its competitors because then they are going to be responsible to make sure that you have a license if you're streaming that title. And right now, they are content agnostic. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, truly content agnostic, um, which interestingly leads us to the other half of this topic. Um, they have been so content agnostic, um, save for manual intervention, um, which has involved things like, um, you know, manually interacting with and taking down adult content and things like that. Um, they have completely ignored copyright law. They have ignored all kinds of things. And um, that seems to have possibly caught up with them this week. Because in addition to this tweet that went out uh, from from uh, a Google studio... Um, an email also went out from Twitch to some high-profile streamers letting them know that uh, content had been removed under DMCA, had been deleted. The word deleted was used, which is important. Um, so Twitch does not have a um, an appeals process because they've literally never done this before. Um they used the word deleted and many of the content creators were also threatened that there was other content on their channel that infringed and would be deleted uh, if it wasn't dealt with. So it seems like we're getting to that, that level um, in game streaming where people are starting to pay attention. Um, podcasting hit this uh, a couple of years ago. We started to see uh, Rhea get involved and issue DMCA takedown notices against podcasts for using music without, without a license. Um, and I have a feeling that that's what's happened here. I don't think that it's the game studios <laughs> in this particular case. I think what's happened here is a lot of streamers have used music and graphics and stuff that they didn't have rights to. And I think the rights holders are starting to come after them. Maybe Rhea has uh, started indexing, uh, Twitch or something like that and issued takedown notices. And that obviously is their right. It is what that's how the DMCA is set up. However, the fact that Twitch doesn't have an appeals process, we've talked about this before, uh, is a mess because we know all of the invalid DMCA requests that happen on YouTube. Uh, we talked about that, what, two or three weeks ago. Um, over uh, over the, the, the truck. Oh, the Nikola truck, right? Um, we talked about the invalid DMCA takedown notices on that, and if there wasn't an appeals process, all those content creators would lose their, their stuff. That's literally what's happened here on Twitch, and I think that's going to cause Twitch a lot of trouble um, 
maybe Microsoft got out of the game a little too early. Uh, <laughs> because if Twitch doesn't put a, um, a an appeals process in and it's just deleting content, content creators are not going to trust the platform with their stuff. Because I can go in and put in an invalid DMCA. I mean, it's a felony, but we'll ignore that. I, I go in and put in an invalid DMCA against... Uh, a, a streamer and their stuff goes away. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, that would be a really serious problem. And that's that's literally what we're seeing here: is content just disappearing with no way to appeal it, no way to claim any kind of fair use, no way even to download it and save it for yourself. It's just gone. So this is obviously a mess. Uh, for for Twitch and Amazon, who is the the parent of Twitch, um, hopefully we'll see an appeals process come about quick because they're gonna they're gonna lose reputation if they don't if they don't deal with this and deal with it quickly. So it does seem like the industry is changing. It seems like the world is taking note of it, which obviously when an emerging uh, uh, technology starts to get noticed. That's when, when rules <laughs> that already applied start to be enforced, and that confuses everybody. So we'll we'll see how this is how this is handled going forward because obviously this is important for a lot of people. I mean, we're literally streaming on Twitch right now. If you're watching us live, um, so you know this this affects a lot of people. Uh, so we will keep an eye on this going forward. This week's news from the tubes and F5 Live is probably powered by Rift Tracks. Make fun of movies or let these guys do it for you. Mike Nelson, Bill Corbett, and Kevin Murphy, the former stars of Mystery Science Theater 3000, are back and doing what they do best, creating commentaries for Hollywood blockbusters and B-movie oddities. It's like watching a movie with your funniest friends. And to find out about all of the full-length features, the short films, the uh, TV episodes and live events that are coming up. You can find all of that at f5live.tv slash tracks with an X. So we talked about this uh, in, I think, May, that the inevitable um, antitrust case against Google was uh, likely coming in the next couple of months, and this week, that inevitability came to pass. Uh, the U.S. Justice Department has filed an antitrust suit against Google after years of uh, investigations. Uh, this current one uh, happened in, I think, three phases starting in 2013. Uh, so it has been seven years uh, to get here. The claim is very similar to the antitrust claim uh, that was brought against them in the European Union in 2018, uh, for which Google ended up uh, being fined $5 billion. Uh, essentially, the claim from the Justice Department is that Google has used its uh, search position. Uh, they represent 80% of the search market in the United States. They've used their search position to boost up their other products and then in turn use their other products to boost up their search, creating um, 
essentially a firewall to the internet. Um, the Justice Defar Department actually described Google as the gateway to the internet, and for many people it is, whether you're talking about uh, finding stuff on Google Search or using Chrome as your browser or Android as your operating system. The, that particular claim makes sense. Um, although, you know, whether or not whether or not they've uh, they've used their position to actively uh, or intentionally harm others has been up in the air. Obviously, that's why it's taken seven years to get to where we are. Um, companies like Yelp have made claims uh, for years that that Google has uh, essentially stolen their data and then minimized uh, the the relevance of Yelp. Uh, and Yelp sued, and things changed. Um, but the, I mean, this this is the biggest antitrust case in uh, in the U.S. since the Microsoft case in the 1990s. Um, the night the the Microsoft case was filed in '98, and the verdict was handed down in 2000. So, do not expect this to be a short process. Um, and most of what happened in the Microsoft case ended up basically not coming to pass anyway. Um, although the end result was kind of opening a door uh, for Google to, to come up out of nowhere and, and become uh, a big player, which is a good thing. More, more competition. Avram and I say it all the time, right? More competition in a space uh, tends to lead to, uh, to more innovation, which certainly, you know, it, it put Microsoft and Apple on their, on their toes for a long time. So yeah, that was, that was good, but there is no telling how this thing's going to go. Yeah. Hard to say. I mean, looking at, looking at the justice department's, uh, press release on this, the points that they mention are entering into exclusivity agreements that forbid in pre-installation of any competing search service. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's, I guess that's like with Android phone, Android phone vendors yeah. and especially, um, especially Android phone vendors, uh, because you can't have the play store, uh, access unless you follow a lot of Google branded rules. Entering into tying and other arrangements that force pre-installation of its search applications and prime locations on mobile devices and make them undeletable. Okay. That's kind of the same thing having the Google, the Google search app. Um, I think that's, I think that's uh, talking about having the, the search widget pre-installed on the home screen that I, I read some more on that. And it feels like what they're getting at there is the, the Google search widget on the home screen. Into agreements with Apple that require Google to be the default in Safari and other Apple search tools generally using monopoly profits to buy preferential treatment for its search engine on devices, browsers, and other search access points, continuous and self-reinforcing cycle of monopolization. So um, I don't have a problem with them buying, paying for the rights to have Google search be a default anywhere. Everybody has done it. Microsoft has done it. Yahoo has done it. I, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, here's a here's an interesting little story from my life this week. Uh, we got my mother a new laptop recently, 
and it came with a year of free McAfee mm-hmm. uh, McAfee antivirus. So we installed the McAfee antivirus, and she came over with her laptop this week, and she was complaining. Time she opens up the browser, it wants to search Yahoo, and I said, and she's opening up Chrome and Yahoo. Finally figured out why it was searching Yahoo. Correct. It was searching Yahoo because when we installed McAfee antivirus on my mother's computer, McAfee made it search Yahoo. It mm-hmm. calls it secure search. But it's really just probably Yahoo paying McAfee some money somewhere. Yeah. So I had to go in and do the opposite and change it back to Google because my mother wanted Google. Because most Google, because for better or worse, Google is is the standard for search. Now, maybe that's a shame because and, there really isn't a lot of competition. And there, and there might be uh, at least some of the justification behind the the Justice Department's inquiry here. Um, we'll we'll the see. The problem is no other search engine is has shown to give me better results. Interesting, because uh, personally, I uh, hate Google's search results, <laughs> and I uh, exclusively use uh, uh, Bing's search results because I find that the the results are better. Yeah, and so, I, I, mean, I tested it's... about I tested about quarterly. Now, granted, most of my searches are on highly technical things, and a lot of it is within the Microsoft ecosystem. So, <laughs> you know, I. I, I'm an odd case. Yeah, also, um, also, also interesting is, in a sense, I'm also bound to using Google because my, you know, as someone who runs a website, like we really only care about our ranking on Google mm-hmm. because so little traffic comes from Bing, and you know, any other search engine is below the floor. Like nobody, which is nobody which, even. Which is about. which is the Justice Department's uh, Google is the gateway to the internet. Yeah, I mean it, it is. I mean the influence of I mean the things that they're talking about in comparison to the things that Google really is accomplishing with its monopoly position that that could be frightening. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for example, Google has an outsized influence on the content of the web. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if you can call that using your monopoly position or not, but like, let's talk about Google AMP for a second. Uh, for those who don't know, Google AMP is the format when you're on a mobile device, click on a result from Google and it loads super fast and it, maybe you'll see slash AMP in the URL. Mm-hmm. That's a format which excludes certain types of page elements, certain types of graphics, certain types of JavaScript, whatever, because Google gives preferential treatment to websites that do, that use Google's AMP format. That offer AMP, yeah. And and that is at the expense of those sites because Mm -hmm. not only do they have to make the stuff, uh, make an AMP version of their pages, but those AMP versions of the pages have fewer ads on them, mm-hmm. so usually, so they're they're losing money. So and, there's a lot of reason. They, what... And they tend to be uh, Google ads because they're far easier to integrate. 
Yeah. So, and Google also, you know, times is kind of the the content police with with people's websites, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, oh, we don't like. I mean, we've heard various. I mean, nobody knows for sure what Google's search engine wants at any given time because yeah. that's kind of a trade secret and is always changing. And it and we're all trying to guess at any given time how we get closer to number one and on any given search term. In 2019, I think I think the number we saw was that there were 450 adjustments to the to the search algorithm. And yes, that's more than one a day. So yeah, what does it want so, right now? I don't know. It might be different than it was this morning. <laughs> yeah. So bottom line, like, you know, obviously Google all these things under the, you know, and they say that they're doing it to help the user experience. And in a lot of cases, it is a benefit. It is a tangible benefit to the user. I'm sure I don't like going on web pages that have a million, uh, you know, that have a million ads on them. They like web pages that load fast. Mm -hmm. Like we don't even need to do a big survey to figure that one out. But <laughs> the but the thing is, in a way, you're kind of enforcing, you know, being kind of the content police. I mean, mm -hmm. granted, Google's argument would be, hey, it's not our problem. I mean, if you don't want people us to be we're not forcing you. You don't have to be in our search engine. And and <laughs> there know, the, and there's the antitrust case. <laughs> but you do have to be in their search engine if you want people to see you. Right. Um, if you're not on Google, you're nowhere. And and you know that's so Google does have an incredible incredible influence, and in a way, it is in a way it is frightening. But the things that the Justice Department named here are really the really tip of the iceberg because they're just talking about getting Google pre-installed on devices primarily. And that's mm -hmm. like, frankly, if Google wasn't pre-installed on those devices, a lot of people would probably go in and change their search engine to Google anyway, anyway. because they're so conditioned to use Google. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really sure if, if that's going to, to do anything about Google's, Monop you know, do anything with Google's monopoly position. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting um, to see how this spiders, um, because in the Microsoft case, um, from the initial filing, I think there were three more that followed, and all of that was wrapped into a single, um, into a single court appearance. <laughs> uh, it all it all came together under under one thing. The first. The, the first filing was was pretty high level. And then, you know, I think it was the second filing that included uh, Internet Explorer being an integral part of Windows 98 and things like that. Um, because Windows 98 hadn't really hit when the first one <laughs> when the first one was filed. So uh, the the subsequent ones added additional uh, challenges. Uh, and I have a feeling we'll see the same thing here. Um, we'll, that we'll likely see additional challenges added to this over time. Clearly, this is just the beginning of us talking about it because there's no way that this is a short process. Uh, this is going to be a couple of years, almost certainly. Um, and one of the things that the Microsoft case 
showed us in the 90s was how little the legal system understood technology. And like Abram kind of just said, I don't know if it was exactly the point, but it, a little bit, uh, the fi- this filing here might have shown that it hasn't gotten much better in the, in the last 22 years. Um, yeah, yeah. I because mean, they, they definitely seem to have missed the point. Of- there's a lot of other areas of attack here, but maybe they won't come from the government. I'm, I, I bet someone has sued them, uh, but I'm not aware of anybody suing Google for things like the answer box, right? Like areas where Google takes content from other sources. It on. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yelp's Yelp's suit wasn't entirely about the answer box it was kind of the predecessor to it um it was the thing that came up on the right hand side that wasn't quite the answer box but was was like the we're learning what we're doing and it became the answer box um and yelp sued them over it and uh was they were basically delisted from google's sidebar uh so there have been there have been very specific cases but there haven't been there hasn't been anything generic like overarching which is what an antitrust case would be would be an overarching case so maybe we'll see um you know perhaps yelp (laughs) has been in contact with the justice department or maybe they will be now that (laughs) now that a filing has happened um to to talk about how it affected them there's no telling but obviously we will be talking about this for a while yeah, I wouldn't. Well, that's not, I wouldn't be surprised if image libraries uh, were an area where a lawsuit could happen mm-hmm. because there's like Google Image Search and Google News where they show you a thumbnail uh, and all the areas where they're taking images mm-hmm. and showing it in their search. I could totally see like the publishers, like you know, our website. Like we don't want to. We don't want to get on Google's bad side. Like they want to show an image for our thing. Nope. They want to use us in the answer box. Please, we want to be on Google. We want to be behind Google. But I could see I could see a photographer or an image library like Getty or somebody mm-hmm. uh, deciding, hey, look, when I do an image search, my image comes up. You're showing my image, but I didn't you didn't license Google, you didn't license my image. The right. Wall Street Journal did, or this other website did. So you know, without that we've a billion image searches now pay us. Yeah, that's a, it's definitely an interesting, uh, an interesting situation. And it might explain why sometimes in Google news, you see like the, the publisher's logo in the, in the thing. And sometimes you see it on Facebook too. Um, because, you know, you do have control as the, as the website, you know, with, for with Facebook, it's the open graph with, with Google. It's the, the, the other one. I can't remember what it's called now. Um, but you can control what image Google indexes or Facebook indexes for your, for your thing. So, you know, perhaps those arguments are made, you know, maybe Google could get away with it by saying, well, we just did what the publisher told us to do. Talk to them. But it might, it might be why we're starting to see like the New York times, logo show up more frequently on Facebook when an image is shared or when an article is shared um, rather than the, the proper uh, article image. Anyway, um, there's, like you said, there's a lot of surfaces here and 
I don't think that they have found any of them <laughs> yet. <laughs> um, because, you know, okay, so pre-installing Google search on your on your phone, that's fine. I I've got the Surface Duo in the office. It had all of the Google stuff installed and all of the Microsoft stuff installed and who cares? Uh, so I don't think that's, I don't, like you said, I don't think they found, I think they've missed the, the plot here, but maybe further, further, uh, filings are coming. We will definitely but, see. We'll be right. keeping an eye on it. Yeah. Raspberry Pi OS comes with DuckDuckGo preloaded. <laughs> I have, uh, I have the DuckDuckGo browser installed on my, <laughs> no, it's Chrome browser, Chromium browser, but DuckDuckGo is your search engine. Oh, okay, I've been I've been experimenting with the DuckDuckGo browser, and it's fascinating. Anyway, <laughs> uh, like I said, we'll be keeping an eye on this probably over the next couple of years. So we're not going anywhere on it. This week's DRM not included in F5 Live is probably powered by Amazon Prime. In addition to your free shipping, uh, you get a lot of other benefits, such as free music with Amazon Prime Music, free TV, movies, and documentaries with Amazon Prime Video, uh, including the new Borat film, free games, and a free subscription on Twitch with Amazon Prime Gaming, and a whole lot more. We have quick links to all of these features, as well as a free 30-day trial in the event you do not already have it, and the ability to give it as a gift in case you want to give uh, a Prime subscription to a friend or family for the holidays. And all of that is in one place by going to f5live.tv slash prime. All right. If there's one topic that Avram and I have talked about over the last couple of years, it has been the inevitability of subscription fatigue and the unbelievable uh, onslaught of new video streaming services. Well, this week the topic is a little different because one of those streaming services uh, has officially announced that December 1st, uh, bye-bye. That service is Quibi, which... Um, I think we all saw coming because none of us, nobody I know in the industry, outside the industry, nobody could quite wrap their head around the value proposition on it. In a normal year, uh, the idea of 10 minute short bites, you know, kind of makes sense if you're standing in line waiting for a thing or running on a treadmill, which they literally showed in the commercials being at the gym and watching the the Chrissy Teigen lawyer show on the treadmill. Weird commercial. Um, but none of that has existed this year. Uh, so it has made the value proposition even more difficult. Uh, the company recognized this before they launched that that they were going to have some some issues. They signed an agreement with T-Mobile. We talked about that last year, um, where it was part of the T-Mobile Tuesdays, where T-Mobile subscribers got six months for free. Hey, guess what? That's just expired. Um, so I think they saw all of those T-Mobile customers whoop, disappear. Um, 
they signed big name content. They focused on big name content. Like I mentioned, the Chrissy Teigen lawyer thing, I have or judge thing. I have no idea what that was about. Uh, Reno 911, we talked about that, which was honest to God, the only thing on the service that I had cared about. And I used my seven day free trial to watch all the episodes and then moved on. Um, so they recognized ahead of time that they were going to have an uphill battle. Um, I think the lockdowns made that hill almost 90 degrees. I don't think that there was, I don't think in 2020 there was a way for them to succeed with it. Um, unless they had adopted the peacock model, which they tried. We talked about it. They tried it in Australia and New Zealand, um, but they didn't roll it out nationwide, uh, worldwide. I think they should have. They might have actually seen some success because Comcast seems to be real happy with how Peacock is going. Yes. So my question is, they had the Fugit show. Will you be able to find out whether, whether they find the one-armed man? So it's a fascinating question. Um, the The question of the future of the content is the only thing we don't quite know right now. Um, because in grand quibby fashion, um, they took a different approach to the content. They spent their money to produce the content, but did not own the rights to it. Um, they would sign two-year exclusivity deals on on the the properties, but did not um, own the rights to the thing. So they don't have the right to sell the rights because they do not own them. Um, and we don't know if the company closing is going to invalidate these two-year uh, exclusivity deals. But... If everything goes right and the exclusivity deals are terminated at the closing of the company on December 1st, the content creators will have the, the ability and the right to reshop the content. So that will be up to the, <laughs> to the content creators themselves uh, what happens. So we have no idea what what the future of any of this content looks like is some of them probably have, uh, have rollback agreements. Um, I cannot imagine that, uh, that comedy central allowed the Reno nine one one thing to not have some sort of a rollback agreement in the event the company goes away. Um, but there's no telling what's going to happen here. And even, <laughs> even, uh, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is the founder, and uh, Meg Whitman, who's the CEO, even they're like, we're, we don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was, look, everybody thinks that they can get into the streaming business, and everybody is getting the streaming business. So they probably thought, okay, we don't have any great franchises. We don't have any great IP. What are we going to do? Oh, we'll make it We'll make it short. That'll be our our gimmick. Now, I'm always skeptical of any type of media where the idea is to just make it short, mm -hmm. in, to just to use the brevity of the medium. The brevity is the message or whatever. But on the other hand, Twitter succeeded with that, mm -hmm. where I didn't think they would. So, you, um, in fairness, YouTube has succeeded with it. YouTube is kind of the king of of short form video. 
You know what I mean? But they're not charging people for it. Like exactly. And, and I think that was part of Quibi's problem. Is that, that YouTube is social media, mm, right? In, right? In a lot of ways. Because it's, it's user generated. It's user generated. If you're paying for a YouTube subscription, then you're paying for ad free or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Which is a very um, similar model to Peacock. Right. So, so that's, that's where YouTube, that's where you, you know, and and YouTube is not bite-sized by its nature. It's just a lot of things are are shorter because people think that, you know, that's all someone can, can bear. Right. Uh, Obviously we're we're a phone review. I'm not going to spend an hour on it. Obviously we're an exception to the rule. (laughs) Yes. Being on uh, YouTube, but, but you know, both of our, both of our companies do uh, have do a lot of short form stuff. I know. I see. Uh, I see Cherie posts. Yeah, I see her do short videos. Sure, but it's 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 Fo- focused. Not, but it's, it's not, not short not, by um, by force. It's short by nature. It, the the content is what it is. Also, it's not. Also, it's nonfiction, right? Like, right, right. I think. I think the thing is. I've never seen a movie or a show where I was like, oh man, that was, well, I mean, occasionally like, oh, that was really long, but I, it's rare that I would see like a one hour show or something and be like, that episode was too long. I really could have, should have seen it in five minutes. Uh, unless I mean, people unless are, it's terrible. <laughs> yes. If, if it's bad, you didn't want then to you're like, the oh place. God, I cannot believe I just put an hour into that. <laughs> right. But I've never seen a movie where I was like, this is one of the things I'll never get people, people complain about like, you know, a new Avengers movie comes out or something like, Oh, it's terrible. It's three hours long. Well, you're paying the same $15. I mean, if we ever go to movie theaters again, right. You're paying, you're paying the same $15 to see it, whether it's three hours long or an hour and 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. you might as well get your money's worth. So if it, if it's really good, then it won't seem like three hours. Right. So, so, Quibi was sort of based on this concept that like, oh, you just can't bear to watch more than five minutes. And like, first of all, if you have something like the, the Fugitive here where they had a whole bunch of different episodes, like, okay, so you just watch them one after the other anyway. Anyway, I mean, I, I watched, what's the point? I watched all of the Reno 911 episodes in one sit down shot. <laughs> Right. So I, mean, I was done. I was done in an hour, an hour and a half or whatever it was. And uh, that was it. I was done uh, with Quibi. <laughs> I was like, all right, subscription complete. <laughs> yeah. It, I don't, I don't see short video as a selling point. In yeah. the early days of web, do you remember way back in the early days of like YouTube and, and earlier, there were all kinds of like little web series where mm-hmm. everything was five minutes long or, mm-hmm. or less. Mm-hmm. And it just made everything seem so throwaway. And then you start to have uh, companies like Netflix come and make like real television yeah. on the internet. It was like, Oh wow. Now I can take this seriously versus when they'd have things like, what was it like BMW or somebody had a whole, series of five minute movies that they had put up yeah 
uh, by famous directors. Yes. Yes. I, I remember some that car company. I don't know if yes. it's BMW. I don't remember who it was either, but yeah, I, I had forgotten about that, but yes, I definitely remember it. But you know, the thing that, that got me when Quibi made this announcement, they made it like a big deal. Like we're doing short form and it's going to be, everything's under 10 minutes. And I remember thinking, well, so was super deluxe and where are they today? The, right. I, nothing that has ever tried to enforce a time rule on video, except for Snapchat has been able to accomplish it or TikTok. That's what I meant. Um, and they don't really so much have an enforcement so much as a community standard, but you know, it's, I have, we haven't seen it really succeed. Yeah, there was Vine, which was six seconds, and that was just the the Twitter of video. But you know, trying to actually produce content within within a time a, a hard set time frame like that is such a silly concept that Thirty Rock literally made fun of it a decade ago on television. Yep. So what I was talking about, it was BMW. Okay. It was called The Hire. And they had famous directors for every episode. I think um I think what's it would they were all about Clive Owen playing the driver who goes from one place to another in BMW hired to provide driving or other services. Yes. Sort of like I guess a uh, what was that movie with Jason Statham? Like a poor man's uh, some movies with Jason Statham, the driver. What was he called? Where he drives around and yep. brings cargo. He doesn't look in the trunk. Yep. Uh, it's, uh. it's like a cheapo, cheapo ad uh, supported version of that. Um, and uh, transporter. Yeah, like, you know, that's what web video was. Yeah, it was like the transport. It was like a poor man's transporter or whatever for the, five minutes at a time. The dollar store version. Yeah. The dollar store version of transporter, <laughs> uh, but done, done to promote BMW cars. And that's what, and just for folks who weren't, you know, uh, online at the time or, you know, or young, uh, so young, they didn't notice like that was what web video was like 20 years ago. It yeah. was like really short videos it was it wasn't expected that people were going to be on lot be have an attention span for long stuff because it was going to take forever to download studios yes the people didn't have broadband there there wasn't as many there weren't a lot of people watching that stuff on television so on a on a television so the thought was you'd be sitting in front of your computer mm -hmm. and who and maybe the people aren't going to sit in front of their computer long enough to watch a movie um now of course people have set top boxes yeah. they've got tablets they've got phones so and they've got broadband yeah so anyway i don't know that's why when, when i think of quibi i think of stuff like that yeah like um i my mind immediately went to super deluxe uh, because it was a it was a fascinating story to watch um, because it was Turner's second attempt at the exact same concept. Um, and it failed just as miserably the second time as the first. Um, but I also 
on the other side of it, I also think of an interview I saw. This is going to age it, so be prepared. On the screensavers, um, with uh, I think it was Kevin Pereira and Leo Laporte uh, talking to Tim and Eric when they had just had their show. Tom goes to the mayor, picked up by Adult Swim, and uh, and one of them asked, "How are you going to be able to deal with with the eleven minute time frame?" instead of a standard 22 or 44 minute episode. And uh, I think, I think it was Tim said, you know, we've really talked about that a lot. We don't know how we're going to do 11 minutes. That's a lot of time. We're used to doing two and a half, (laughs) 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 which obviously wasn't what they were asking. It was the opposite. Um, But they had been doing what we were just talking about. They were doing old style I mean, it was the screensavers, so that ages it out pretty good. Um, they were doing old-style web content, and they were averaging about two and a half to three minutes per episode. And now they were having to fill 11. They're like, I don't know how we're going to do that. <laughs> so, yeah. A- anything that tries to force inside of a time, like appointment television, is is getting harder to do. Um, so I don't think it was a selling point. Like you said, I don't think... 10 minutes was a selling point. Um, they, I think they really thought that they were going to get Gen Y and Gen Z in there. Like, quick hit, wait in that Starbucks. And I, <laughs> honest to God, in all the pitches, that was how it felt. And I think it was a, a, a silly pitch. But doesn't matter. It's over. Uh, we're not even going to talk about the lawsuit because uh, <laughs> that's its own barrel of worms um but the company has simply had trouble uh 1.75 billion dollars in investment and uh i think they have 380 million left of it uh that they're going to return to investors and then who knows i that look on your face Abram. when i saw those numbers that was my feeling too um it's so they're gonna they said I'm they're gonna what? Uh, producing the content. What did they spend it on? Producing the content, hiring, spending money on people like Chrissy Teigen. Uh, it, there were a lot of salary uh, salary numbers in there. They really thought that if they had big name people, it would attract people to the platform. They were obviously wrong. Um, not being able to watch it on your TV uh, was also a huge disaster point for them. Um, they definitely missed the mark on almost everything. And honestly, I don't think most people are even going to know that the service existed. And those that did are probably not going to miss it. So Quibi, goodbye. And that is our show. Thank you to those of you who joined us uh, live for all of the interesting technical fun that we had tonight. Um, if you didn't join us live and would like to experience, hopefully not the chaos that we had tonight, um, on another night, uh, Sunday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, you can go to f5live.tv slash join us and uh, chat with us in the studio, uh, give us feedback as we talk and uh, watch us panic when things do go wrong. Um, if you aren't able to join us live, that's okay. You can always go to plugkitslive.com slash subscribe. You can see all of our shows and all the ways that you can watch, listen, and follow along. Um, 
uh, honestly, for those who stuck it out for the entire live show, congratulations. Uh, we're, we appreciate it because tonight has been bonkers. Um, but you know what? It is what it is. Live does what live does. Um, but yes, with that, on behalf of the staff that's not here, I'm Scott. I'm Abram. And we will see you guys back next time. Ciao.